Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, today, we have one of my buddies from McIntyre again, from uh, Snapper Layman. And uh, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about our admin first, because everyone knows that I will forget it if I don't talk about it now. So uh, like, share, subscribe, uh, tell everybody about the podcast, and let us know how we're doing. Info at KodiakShack.com, and check out our website, KodiakShack.com. Donations are always open. The link will be in the show notes. And uh, thank you, everybody, for the feedback uh, on the hats and as well the uh, audio quality because it uh, turns out I'm not a professional, as everyone knows. Uh, Snapper, thanks for being here today. Tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Yeah, so I've listened to enough of these. I know uh, I can go ahead and start talking. There's really not much to tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Snapper. Uh, I fly with the 157th at McIntyre. Um, been flying there about 13 years. Prior to that, I was enlisted in the Alabama Guard as a fuel truck driver. And uh, prior to that, I did about three months of Air Force ROTC, uh, which is enough to make me join the Guard. And then, uh, so been doing, like I said, I've been here since uh, flying in South Carolina since about, uh, let's see, the fall of 2011. And uh, since then, I've been flying for the airline. So I do that full time and been a part time guy since 2014. So just barely hanging on and trying to keep up with the fast pace of the uh, the F-16 and doing all that. Yeah, sweet. Well, in uh, a war dam, right? Is war, that a thing? That war dam, that's what we say, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, all the other SEC fans, but, uh, you know, got to support, especially in uh, South Carolina with all USC right down the road. Well, it's a big deal. I mean, like, you know, when you're working on the weekends, like one weekend a month, I mean, there's we're not going to sit around and talk about tactics. We're going to sit around and talk about college football. So, you know, drill weekend in the fall is a big deal at the squadron. Yeah, it's. Uh, I. I mean, I enjoyed it. I had. I got to spend uh, what two and a half years out at uh, McIntyre, and it's. It's amazing just how different it is. You know, being an active duty guy and showing up at the guard, and you're used to a fighter squadron being one thing where it's everybody's obviously full time. Everyone's assumed pretty much available except for the commanders, and then you get to the guard <laughs> and you're like, oh man, these dudes like they have entire lives beyond this squadron that, you know, jobs and, you know, they've, they've known each other for 10, 15 years, you know, like, uh, like shooter and everybody else. Like, it's just, it's such a different vibe. How was it different from like Montgomery to McIntyre? I would say, I mean, I, w- I was never an officer or a pilot there. Um, but I think, I mean, it was, it was definitely the same experience. I mean, it's a close knit family that you only, you know, you only see a few days a month and, like you, you don't realize how close knit you are with them until you take like two or three weeks off because you've got X, Y, Z going on with your personal life or your, you know, civilian job. And then you show back up and it's like, you know, like when we were flying together at McIntyre, you know, I'd be gone for like two or three weeks and I'd show back up and like see you and I'd be like, oh man, hey, I'll, you know, and it's like we were best bros and we never, we never left off. Like when we just picked up and like all of a sudden you're close with everybody and you know, it's, it, it was kind of the same dynamic that I experienced there as an enlisted, you know, troop. Uh, as a McIntyre with a pilot, um, it's it's kind of it, it's hard to compare to anything or hard to relate. Um, I I don't even think my spouse gets it. She's like, but you only see these guys like every like few weeks. Like, how could it be that different? But you know, that's the guard. You know, and as I'm sure you're learning in Fresno, like in your in your time that you've had there so far, it's just it's a family. Like, it's your built-in family, your built-in friends. You know. Yeah. Well, and the uh, it's just such a different because in an active duty squadron, everybody's pretty much young, like relatively young in their careers. They haven't been around a lot. So they're a little more rigid. And then I'm yeah. sitting at the uh, 
top three desk. And uh, the top three is where you'll kind of supervise flying. You'll kind of help people out if they have an emergency airborne. And uh, I think it's shooter is giving me my top three checkout or soft checkout, whatever it is. And dirty uh, is flying. And so when you're coming back, you'll call back to the field and, uh, and kind of tell them your codes. Like, Hey, if the jet's broken, if it's not broke, whatever. And so uh, you'll normally call, call back like, Hey, I'm, you know, what, like 6.9 out and uh shooter goes, uh, go with codes. And then dirty responds, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And then after this pregnant pause, dirty, like, Hey, both code one. And then shooter goes, say again. And he goes, no. And then (laughs) leaves the frequency. And I was like, Oh, the guard is different. Like this is different than active duty. Uh, so funny. Good group out there. Yeah, it's a little grain of salt, too. I mean, plus, especially when it comes to stuff like that, there's like the voice recce, like, you know, even if you fly with somebody once, you start to voice recce him. But when you start when you've been doing it for 10 years, like it really starts to build. And it's just like, I kind of feel bad for the like first assignment, like the people that come out of pilot training and their first assignment is to come to McIntyre um or any guard unit for that matter a reserve unit and like they pick up our bad habits which is treating our inner flight radios as just a like a soapbox like to say whatever you want and from what i've understood <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong but from what i've understood active duty is not like that like you don't talk on the aux radio like you if, if it's not tactical or a fuel check or anything like that you don't speak um but I think a lot of guys leave here with really bad habits because we're just like, hey, I've been flying with you for 10 years. Like, we're going to talk about golf, you know, yeah. <laughs> like on the way to and from the airspace. Like, we're going to laugh at each other for screwing up when we're doing something tactical, you know. Like, I, I kind of yeah. did that today against a bunch of active duty people. And uh, they all just kind of looked at me in the debrief like, yeah, who was that? And I was like, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. I left Misawa and it was. It was the radios were silent unless ATC was talking or you were, you had some reason to speak. It was just silent the whole way home. And then, yeah, going to McIntyre and it's like, Hey, can you see Augusta over there? I feel like, I know it's on <laughs> this side of the airspace, you know, and Hey, let's just, just cancel and go 20 left and see if we can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Do the, uh, what was it? The Swamp Fox arrival? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, being a true, a true guard unit, we found a way, to legally fly over the lake that neighbors the city that our base is in. So we published a VFR arrival that goes right down the middle of the lake that we probably have 10 or 15, you know, pilots that live on. And uh, so it's a published known arrival that, you know, uh, Columbia approach knows about Shaw approach knows about our tower knows about. So uh, it's a good way not to get any noise complaints. Not that we do anything dangerous or anything, you know, unsafe or anything like that, but uh you know, it's a good way to, to have the excuse to say, yeah, well, you know, I was flying down the lake at a thousand feet or 1500 feet, you know? So what? Yeah, it's legal. Well, that's, <laughs> I remember one of our first sorties You were we, I think you were the first person to take me on Swamp Fox arrival and you were like, yeah, you see that like finger on the, that peninsula of my house is right there. I was like, man, this is, this is a different life and I love it. Yeah. That's, that's back when I was a bachelor and I could afford to live on the lake, but now the uh, yeah. married and half kids can't afford the lake anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that's that lake life. It's a different one. The uh, well, do you remember the when we flew against the uh, A10s? I thought about it today. I was and not not because we were doing this, but somebody said, "Yeah, yeah. some A10s called and asked for red air," and I just started like I just nodded and was like, <laughs> "It was a group of people." I was like, "I'm not going to say anything," but yeah, I remember that. Yeah. What do you, What do you remember about it? Well, I remember that uh, their tactics 
were uh, were interesting. I was uh, there. I was confused by their tactics because apparently I may have talked about this before on some episode, uh, but the A10s kept just doing cross turns, so they would like to confuse you would like turn across each other, so they would like, oh, which one do I go after? But it was it took them so long to cross turn that you could gun the first one and then turn to the next one and gun the second one. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Well, what it, do you remember it, that one? Well, it, I would, I'd say a pile on it was confusing and that I was like, what are they doing? But at the same time yeah. <laughs> that took two seconds to process. And then I rotated and shot the other one. So it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> but like, so the first thing about it was cause I was a part-timer and I, I was a pretty new part-timer and I told the scheduler, so I was like, listen, like if I'm coming in off like a bunch of days off, like don't give me anything that requires outside coordination or mission planning or anything like that. And so I was, I was at the gym, I was on a day off, like coming off an airline trip and I get a text from some random phone number. This is, Hey, you know, whatever his name was like, you know, slam. He's like, Hey man, I'm with whatever. And we're flying together tomorrow. And I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. I was like, they put me in some like DCA sort with like some like out of how, you know, like not McIntyre red air, like what, you know, I was a little frustrated. And then I looked at the schedule and I was like, ah, I was like red for a 10. So it's like, okay. So I called the guy back and I'm like, Hey bro, what's up, man. Um, and I was like, totally fine with it after that. So when I was talking to him, he was like, Hey, you know, it's a, uh, he was the IP and his wingman was, I think it was an MQT, right? I think so. And yeah, he was like, like he was like, I want to show him what like four and a half gen like fighters look like when they're flying, like what y'all's performance looks like. And I'm like, I'm flying with Vader. I was like, heck yeah. I was like, we can totally, we can totally <laughs> show him what a Viper looks like. And so whatever the setup was, I remember coming across their nose, so to speak at like 450 knots, 10,000 feet. And like on the limiter, nine G's, like vape coming off the jet, like tunnel vision. And I'm like, oh man, this is a Viper. This is what it looks like. And then like, I really started to lose my vision. So I started to let off and pull the power back and let off, pull the power back. And then all of a sudden I got everything back. And then I looked and I was like, I can't see him anymore. And I was like, hey, Vader, like, where are they? And you're like, they're 10 miles behind you. <laughs> and so like, and there was like, what to me was like five seconds. It was like, a, you know, like a minute and I was 10 miles away from him. I'm like, okay, well, you know, kind of, kind of shine my, uh, you know, shine my A on that one. Yeah, no, it was good. I think, I think we gave them exactly what they were looking for. They were, <laughs> yeah. they were looking to have Vipers just rip around and fly fast and, and just, beat, just to beat see their what chest that's like. And yeah, exactly, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I think that was, that was a fun sortie, but the, uh, that's what I never really totally understood because I, I'd never been part-time. I mean, even now, like I'm in a new plane, but being a part-timer, like how can you explain kind of not being, you, you kind of like set the fighter pilot side away, you go do your other job and then you come back and like, it just works. Like that's just, it's, it's hard for me to truly understand how you can like not think about tactics, not think about the jet and then just show back up and it just all happens. It's um, other than like having a family, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And the only reason I don't want to say I'm good at it, but the only reason I can manage it and the schedulers would beg to differ, but the only reason I can manage it is because I've been doing it since October, 2014. Um, and I think every pilot's different in um, the guard. So you have, you have part-time pilots in the guard and then as guard pilots, you have two different types of pilots. You have a pilot like Vader uh, yourself. Sorry, man. I'm, I, 
differentiating between talking to a crowd talk to talking the audience. to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, so, you know, you came off like a 10 year career flying fighters and, and all that. And so you have that to build upon before you become a part-timer one day. Whereas me, I had three years of flying fighters, uh, when I became a part-timer. So I had like, so I graduated pilot training, went to the F-16 RTU, two years of seasoning at McIntyre with a deployment and then one year as an alert pilot, you know, doing that. So I really had four, maybe three and a half, four years tops flying fighters um, and then became a part-timer. So there's your two different guys, guys or gals, uh, if you will. And <clears throat> I think it depends on the person and what they have to fall back on. I think the people that have 10 years of fighter time to fall back on transition a little bit better than somebody like me who had four years of fighter time to fall back on. Uh, so then you just like from there, you have to recognize what your strengths and weaknesses are um, and how you could adapt as a pilot. So um, for me, there was like the first hard thing about flying fighters and being a flight lead was getting into the airspace and saying, I've got seven other aircraft, nine other aircraft uh, as a flight lead and knowing where they're going to be um, and managing that. that. And that was really hard for me at first. And I thought that was a skill set that was going to fall away because really what it boils down to is paying attention on the radio uh, and knowing who is where and what they're doing. Well, you know, when you're not to like be my chest, but like when you're taxing around like Kennedy at rush hour time, or you're taxing around LA or Atlanta, uh, in an airliner, like, yeah, you're one big fat airplane moving really slowly and there's nothing threatening going on. And the schedule's really not that important, but you're like, you're still listening to every other airplane, like their call sign, their tail number, or not their tail number, um, aircraft type where, you know, you're kind of pay attention to all that. So you're building this picture in your head because you have to know where your air aircraft is moving. So that was a skill set that I thought was going to drop off, but didn't. Um, and that's kind of going down a separate path, but getting back to it, I think the hardest part for me, um, was like, I would sometimes have to take two or three weeks off and in the F-16, you know, you know, you remember you're switching between different screens, you know, and depending on what master mode you're in, you've got three different screens. So you have nine total screens you're scrolling through between air to ground, air to air, missile override. Um, so you're constantly, it's just like a, it's a hands game, like, you know, moving between those. That was the skill that fell off for me. After about a week, I lose that right out. Totally just go, you know, full retard and can't do it anymore. So, um, for me, what I do to get back into the airplane is I tell the schedulers like, hey, schedule me for red or like a like a very basic sortie, like BFM, like 1v1 or a TI, 2v2, two jets versus two jets, something that's just very basic and low pace that I can like warm back up to. And it usually takes me about three or four sorties to get back to where I can be like a very basic flight lead. Um, now, if I wanted to be like a seed package commander or something like that or um, something much bigger, I would need to fly probably five or six sorties in a row over a period of five or six days to like get spun back up. But it, what it boils down to is each pilot needs to, I think, in my personal opinion, needs to know their strengths and weaknesses and you got to identify them early on and then work around that because everyone's totally different. We're, we're all different pilots, you know? Yeah. And I think that's being a younger fighter pilot, being full-time, like only knowing that every day, like every fight I wanted to be like, the most crazy intense fight I could make it. Yeah. And then talking to Glock and, and guns, the, the wing and then squadron weapons officers at the time, they said like, Hey, you can't, it can't always be that like some days yeah. it needs to be a more watered down scenario for, for exactly that reason. Like, Hey, some dudes, this may be their first flight in three, four, five weeks. 
So you can't do this like heinous kick the door down, you know, like advanced seed fight because you're probably, no one's going to get anything out of it. You know, you're going to be mad because, you know, the other dudes aren't be pulling their side of it, but it's because they've been doing, they've lived, living a life that I didn't even understand. So, yeah. And that's hard too. Like, I mean, you, it's, it's a pill you have to swallow. Um, I won't name anyone, but we have a couple guys that, um, and I, and I love them to death and I give them credit. They're like, I, I care about this job too much and I want to be so good in this jet and I want to perform that I can't do both. And so I'm going to choose this one for the time being. Um, cause it's a tough pill to swallow. Um, and by whatever means I, I mean, I chose to swallow it and it's like, but it took a while to get over. Um, I think there was probably two or three years where, you know, when I went into work, I thought people were judging me, uh, you know, Oh, snapper's not performing like he used to. And it took a while for me to realize like, okay, dude, you're, you're not performing like you used to, but are you still capable of stepping up and like relearning some of this stuff and, or like spinning back up to that? Like, yes, you're totally capable of it. Um, but for the time being, you just have to understand, dude, you're not going to be what you were. And, you know, as long as like I'm safe in the airplane, that's my number one goal, just being safe and trying and like not being a detriment to anyone else. Then beyond that, I can correct and learn everything else. If, you know, if I have to go to go to war with X country, I can I can get ready for it. But you know, it's a, it's it's a learning curve. It's a different lifestyle. I think that's and that's by design. Like everybody who doesn't understand the nature of the Guard or Reserves, like they are not manned. They don't have the funding or the the people to be a full time force. That's yeah. what the active duty Air Force is for. The Guard and Reserves is built to have part-time people, which over a period of time will spin up and be a full-time fighting force to uh, help the full-time, you know, the active duty side of it. But I think people, when they don't understand that, they're like, I don't get it. And you're like, yeah, well, because you don't understand everything that goes into it. And some, some people would disagree with you, but I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I, I think we know exactly who we're talking about. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's impossible <laughs> to be like the sharpest spear. Um, when you only do it six days a month, which is, you know, as an experienced pilot in the guard, it's a six day or six flights a month requirement, which usually involves about six or seven days of availability. And it's, um, the air, the airplanes are so complex. The mission is so diverse. It changes so much. It's, it's, it's hard. Like you can, as a part-timer, it's very challenging to stay even semi-relevant, you know? When, what people don't understand is like tactics are being rewritten at best in an annual basis. Like there's going to be tactical bulletins that come out every couple months. So even though the jet doesn't change, the way you employ the jet's going to change. The ranges of things change of yeah. threats or how you employ. And so I, I've noticed a lot of times, like luckily I, I know enough to know I don't know, any, know anything. But I've noticed that a lot of times when guys in the guard who've never been part-time, who've never left the jet, they don't understand that there is a broader perspective out there and they can't, you know, they, they struggle to really see that like, Oh, why can't you be full up? It's like, cause I, I have a full-time job and this isn't it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to comment on without stepping on toes, but yeah, you're totally right. And it's, I mean, this for me, I'm sure it's the same for you. It's, it's been a lifelong goal. I mean, my, my entire, my, my whole purpose in life, you know, prior to this was, was flying fighters. I mean, it was the number one most important thing in the world. And I love every minute of it. Um, but yeah, you definitely do cross that point at some time, like not to say that it's not important anymore because it still is, but you definitely cross that threshold. You crossed it earlier than I did, and, but I crossed it and I was like, okay, 
Like this is still my livelihood. It's still my job. It's my duty as a, an American and a patriot. Um, and I'm going to be professional about it by all means, but you know, there's definitely maybe a handful of things that are more important and, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, I get it. Yeah. Well, and your dad flew, uh, C models. Did he fly a models? He flew A's at Langley and then, um, C they transitioned to C's at Langley right before he left. And then he went to A37s, which, you know, like I got, I got all the family pictures in here. Um, and then he went to New Orleans, uh, to fly with the jazz or sorry, the Bayou militia. That's what they go by now. Uh, and he flew a models there in the early nineties. Everybody in your crew identifies as either big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, nice. The uh, How was that kind of growing up with a dad? Like, do you remember, were you old enough to kind of remember your dad being a fighter pilot? So oddly enough, the, the first memory I have um, was like Santa Claus showing up in, in, in an A-37 uh, at Davis Mountain Air Force Base. And it, it's bizarre. Nice. Like, I know it doesn't make sense. I was, I, was, I was like a year old, but for some reason I remember this tiny little nubby brown airplane pulling up, you know, an A-37 <laughs> is basically a T-37 with T-38 motors. I remember that for some reason. I didn't connect to two. The biggest memories were um, when I was in elementary school in Louisiana, we lived in Slidell on the north side of Lake Pontchartrain, and we would have half days like of school, like on a Wednesday or whatever, you know, Friday. And it was like a half day and my dad was like, okay, well, if you have a half day, I'm going to come pick you up and you're going to come to work with me. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. So he'd come pick me up from school and we'd like, we'd drive to the base and like, you know, listen to Led Zeppelin and the cars and stuff like that, which I still listen to today, like when I'm on my way to work. And there was a gazebo right by the flight line, uh, just like we have at McIntyre. And I think the gazebo is still there at Belchase. And it's such a different time because in the early 90s, like you could do this now, he, you couldn't, but he would put me in the gazebo and he'd be like, just sit here for like two hours and I'll be back. And so I would just sit there with like my toy airplane and like a toy car and I would watch him <laughs> step to the jet and then they'd go fly and I would just sit there the whole time and then he'd come back and land and like, you know, he'd like do a couple low passes and take me out to see the jets and then we'd go home or like the top three would take me out like down the runway and stuff. Like at the time, you know, I don't remember, you know, I was like, oh, cool airplanes. But I look back on it now, I'm like, man, that's just so much stuff you couldn't do today. Um, but it was yeah. cool. I mean, it was those kind of opportunities, um, seeing that as a little kid, like very, very lucky. And it was, it was cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, I think I would have found the job even without that, but it was definitely like the early exposure helped. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny. My, uh, you know, I look now at like my kids and what they kind of experience. And, you know, obviously those are, those are some amazing memories and the, uh, you just, one, you can't do that, but it's just, you don't realize how foreign of a career this is Oh God! Yeah. because my wife sees all the time, like we'll go to some like parent teacher or something or other, you know, we were at some, some school event the other day. And then one person finds out that I fly fighters 
And then out of nowhere, it's just like a little huddle forms around. And then we just start talking about airplanes and it's like, oh, you know, and it's just like airplane questions. And it's, and people are always like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to ask, you know, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, this is literally my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah. Like, don't worry. I will never run out of desire. Do you, do you to want to talk about, about my airplane? airplane or me? Cause like either one, yeah. I got some great stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, one question I've had, and I've made this argument cause I've, I've met some younger people who were. It's weird because this, you know, I don't want to say like a new generation, but it's, it's that generational nature of fighter pilots and in this like younger batch of fighter pilots cannot wait to go be a part-time DSG and all those kind of things. And like some just want to like be out all together gone. And I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a reason guys stay. There's a reason guys have jobs that can easily pay for everything they need, but they stay in the guard and what, what's one of the things that you appreciate about the guard that you've, you've gotten, like that you get that you don't get from the other job? The people. Yeah. I mean, whether we're talking other pilots, enlisted people, um, you know, like it, it's, it's just the people. I mean, it's a, it's a total, in my opinion, it's a total family environment. And there's like, there's a bond that we all have. And especially as like fighter pilot to fighter pilot. I mean, it's, like you were saying, these people come up to you and they're like, I'm almost embarrassed to ask. And like, when you and I get together, like, yeah, we just, we just be asked about fighters for like 10 minutes, you know, prior to this. But, um, I think after 10 minutes, we would just roll into like normal life discussions and just talking about stuff like that. Cause we're the same personality. Um, but it's like, everyone says when they have their finny flight, it's like, yeah, the jet, I'm going to miss it. Of course. I mean, that's the given everyone's going to miss the jet, but, um, the thing you're going to miss more than anyone is the people and the camaraderie. I mean, like we talked about a couple minutes ago, like when I go into work and I see anyone from the squadron or, or catching up with you on this, like haven't, you know, seen and or talked to you other than text, like in a couple of years, like, man, it's awesome. Like yeah. it's great. It's great. I mean, it's, I mean, it's that, that stuff you don't get at the airlines. Like, yeah, there's people I fly with like routinely and you kind of get to know them, but and it's just kind of like, okay, cool. Like, I don't have that same bond with you. Like, even though like, yeah, you're a really nice person, but it's just not the same. I mean, you know, you, I know what you've been through. You know what I've been through. You know, I've put my life in your hands. You put my life in your hands. And at the end of the day, like there, there's, you, you, you can't explain it. Like it's, it's hard. And I know that's why you asked is you like, you want somebody, you know, you want somebody to explain it to the listeners, but, um, it's just such a special, unique culture. I'm not saying we're any better than any other, you know, specialized task, you know, career field, but, um, that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? It's just the people like, I'm, I'm definitely going to miss the people. Like there's people in McIntyre, um, that have, you know, like today, the, uh, the silver foxes. So we're the swamp Fox and the silver foxes are our retired group of pilots, uh, who get together once a quarter. Um, you know, they talk shop and rehash old stories and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we've started inviting them. They used to go like off base somewhere to go have these meetings. And we were like, guys, come on base, eat some popcorn, have a couple beers and, you know, have lunch. But anyways, going into there and, uh, today and like, you know, half those guys I've flown with the other half, like I at least know and heard their stories and see their pictures on the wall and, and, I could walk up to any one of those guys and just talk to him. And it's like immediate, you know, brother, like immediately like best friends start talking. And it's just, that's a bond. I, that doesn't happen at my airline. Like when I walk in, it's like, Oh, Hey man, we fly the same airplane. We've been working here for a while. We're bros. It's not like that. Like it's just different. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. And it's, it's hard. I think you said it exactly right. That it's just hard to explain. Like there's just some nature of that shared experience. The, the, we have similar stories, but they're so they're different enough that we want to hear each other's stories and, and tell about like flying stuff and you know, what we've done and where we've gone. And it's just, it's great. I mean, it's, it's so much fun and it's, it's an awesome community to be a part of. Well, I mean, so like I, today, like the silver foxes, like there's, there's Chester, you remember him, he was there. Wrench was there, D-Dog. Um, some of the Swamp Fox legends were there. And then there was Jaws and Abinet. I don't know if you ever met Jaws. Um, I, I, know, so. I know certainly Jaws doesn't know me, but I tell you, what, I know him. And there's videos of him. He was the first pilot to fly an F-16 into McIntyre. And there's a picture of him like parked in the first F-16 in McIntyre. Like, I think it was 83. And I, you know, I've shook his hand, shook his hand a couple of times and he's like, Hey, I'm Jaws. I'm like, yeah, like, I know exactly who you are, but <laughs> you know, but it's just, you know, it's just super cool. You know, it's good people. Yeah. Well, in the, uh, it's, it's funny how many, how many times like in my flying career that I ran across, ran across the swamp Fox and had no idea like when well, I, and I knew, but then like, it just never kind of came together. So I was at Columbus and they were having a career day and there was a Viper on the ramp. And sure enough, I take a picture with like two of my buddies while I'm in IFF and cause we're all going to F 16s. So there's a picture of us and it's a swamp Fox tail. And Boy. it's like, Oh, sweet. And then my first deployment, who are we swapping out? Swamp Fox. And uh, it turns out I met, uh, I think it was, it was, uh, I think it was Kanga and Cletus as like, <laughs> we're swapping out. And it, again, like you never think about it. You're just kind of like, oh, cool. And then, uh, yeah, there was, uh, there was one other time where it was like this random, like, oh man, that was, that was a Swamp Fox. And it's just like, it was just so weird that I, that I never really thought about it, but it was just, it, the Swamp Fox has kind of always been around. Well, you know, it's the, the Swamp Fox has, and we've been in the F-16 world for so long, but it's, that's, that's really just it is I think what it boils down to is the F-16. Um, and I learned this at a very young age, like when I was still enlisted, when I was an E-5, a staff sergeant, and I got hired uh, to go to pilot training by McIntyre, I had a huge falling out with the wing commander at Montgomery. And I, when I say huge falling out, I thought I did what was right. He cussed me out and dressed me down and was like, you're a quitter. You suck. Anyways. And I was like, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to McIntyre and I'm going to go to be a fighter pilot. I'm going to go fly the F-16. And I started driving home and the squadron commander at the time, Puff Hudson, uh, Puff called me. He's like, Hey man, he's like, what the F did you do? I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I just left Montgomery. I was like, I'm just trying to go be a fighter pilot. And he's like, he's like, I tell you what, man, he's like, your job is safe. He's like, we're not going to unhire you. He's like, you, you made some people mad by leaving when you did. He's like, tell you what, he's like, just go back do what they want you to do. And you can always come back here for a job. Like we're not going to unhire you. And what he said was, he's like, dude, this is a small community. And at the time there was way more F-16 units than there are now. I mean, this was in 2008. Um, and he was like, dude, this is a small community. He's like, you don't want to burn bridges. He's like, because everybody knows each other. And I've learned that at Delta. Like, you know, as soon as like, I meet another F-16 guy that flew Vipers and from 91 to 93, he knows somebody that I know somehow, you know? So it's like, yeah. it's just a small world, you know, small community, very yeah. tight knit. Well, I, yeah, I remember what the other one it was. Uh, you remember it was, uh, I don't remember if it was, 
Northern Watch, whatever fight it was. Uh, but it's a video of Jet Jernigan. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's walking across the flight line. And Colin Powell, it's on YouTube if you guys want to watch it. Colin Powell is, like, talking about how he, he, he sees this fighter pilot or he sees this fighter pilot interviewed. And uh, he's like, you know, oh, like, this is an American fighter pilot. Like, you know, he's just finished a combat sortie. And he's like, God bless me with, like, a good woman and, uh, and something a, else. And, and he's a like, good jet. A good jet, and he's like, God bless America, and he walks away. And sure enough, what was he wearing? Swamp Fox patches. Yeah. And you're like, this is, <laughs> it's just so crazy. Uh, yeah, wow. Well, so uh, well, so everybody knows, because I don't want to miss this part, but Snapper is a secret uh, F-15C uh, fan, maybe because he grew up around him, but uh, <laughs> not so secret anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think everyone can see the... Uh that actually might be an A model Eagle over my shoulder, but still F-15 fan. Like I grew up around him. My dad flew him. And, uh, so Vader, you'll find this funny. And I've thought about this cause I was, I was listening to everyone else kind of like bust your chops over transition into the, uh, C model. And what I'll always tell everyone, like I was in college and I was like trying to find a unit to enlist in and like rush and become like, try to become a pilot in, uh, cause that's, that's the, I'd say most traditional route is to enlist in a unit and then uh, apply to go to pilot training. So I was like, dad, I, I could apply to Jacksonville. Like I'm going to Auburn. I can drive six hours to Jacksonville to drill once a month. And he's like, you know, he was like, well, well, well there's a unit in Montgomery, a guard unit. I'm like, yeah, but it's F-16s. And so my old man, he flew F-15s and A-37s, uh, like I said. And he goes, well, why do you want to be a fighter pilot? And I said, well, I want to blow stuff up. And so he goes, if you want to blow stuff up, you should probably fly the F-16. And I was like, <laughs> hmm, okay. And then so like the next week I drove down to Montgomery and enlisted in the F-16 unit. So yes, I am a huge, you know, Eagle fan, but, uh, you know, I, I get a huge amount of enjoyment of dropping bombs and shooting stuff with a gun. So the F-16 for me was the jet. So yeah, no, I, I agree. And I mean, I had a lot of good times in the F-16 doing exactly that. The uh, Well, speaking of shooting stuff with a gun, so uh, I've never heard this story firsthand. I've only heard it secondhand. So, uh, Snapper, what uh, you got a combat story for us? Yeah, yeah. So if my face is turning red, it's because I'm about to tell a story about the time I almost died. Uh, and so for everyone listening, like Vader kind of prepped me for this. And uh, I'd say it's one of my like I've got two stories that are uh, top two in my career, uh, the most famous for, but this is one of them. So rewind the, you know, rewind the tapes back to 2012, first combat deployment. I was a Lieutenant uh, flying in Afghanistan with us, with, the, with McIntyre. And my first like six weeks there, I got put on like the afternoon, like early evening night train. Uh, and so like you're taking off, like right before the sun goes down, like right about dinner time and then flying into the night. And so I did that for about six weeks and like the first three or four weeks, really nothing going on at that time of day. Uh, I don't know why, but things were always kind of quiet. Uh, and this particular night I was flying with vapor sparks. Uh, good dude. I, I haven't talked to vapor in a long time. I used to keep in touch with them. Uh, I don't know if you've seen him around, but, uh, so I was mm -hmm. his number two, uh, take off at sunset. We go out and we're just doing, you know, the standard go to a certain coordinate, talk to a JTAC and surveil a road. And then we get a text message like, Hey, we got a 
a priority, you know, we get a text message in the jet on the screen, you get data, data, and you hit a button and it says, go to this coordinate. And when you get there, type in, or go to this frequency and it gives you a color coded and a number. So it's like discrete frequency. So we turn and point and on the way that we both have plenty of gas. And so we get there uh, and we show up and we start talking to the guys on the ground. We're like, the guys on the ground, by this time, the sun's totally down. The guys on the ground are saying, hey, we have uh, three guys. Uh, I, in my head, I was saying three jabronis, which is a term that I, I coined in Afghanistan. I don't, know, I don't know if you know that story. Um, oh, no. So we got three guys on the ground. They're transporting weapons from like point A to point B. And um, we need them taken out. So we're orbiting overhead. We're like 20,000 feet. And they're probably used to jet noise all night. They're just kind of strolling out in the middle of the desert. We're just following him. And me and him, me and Vapor, like rotate in and out of the tanker. And we come back. We're both back, both, you know, full of gas. And the guys on the ground were like, hey, we have two Apaches that are going to come in and waste these dudes. And we're like, okay. So like Vapor's the new flight lead. I'm a brand new wingman. We're like, come on, man. Like this is both of our first combat employments. Like let us do this. And they're like, no, nah, we have these Apaches. They're going to waste them. We're like, okay. Uh, so the Apaches roll in and they're, like I said, there's these three dudes and two of them just get, you know, destroyed. And the one is like, he's kind of still like limping, walking, like crawling around. And the Apaches are bingo. Like they're out of gas. That's like the code word for we're out of gas. So they had, the Apaches left. So me and Vapor are still watching, still watching. And the JTAC's like, hey, Viper 1-7, like we want an immediate reattack with guns. So if you like take a step back and look at it, like it's low alum, it's a combat situation, low alum. So for, uh, for those listening, like low alum means like there's not a whole lot of moonlight. It's really dark out. Like I think it's 2.2 millilux is the number. Uh, <laughs> it's below that. And we have a training rule that says you cannot strafe or you know shoot the gun air to ground um below the min safe altitude when it's low alum that's a training rule that i disregarded because i'm in combat right <laughs> so um so vapor being the, the stand-up dude he is i hope he's listening to this or i hope he, he listens to it one day like stand-up dude he is he gives me the attack he says hey to like this is going to be eyeball shooter this is your attack and so in the F-16, what we have is we have a, a system where the flight lead can use his targeting pod and use an infrared laser to light up the target. I hit a button in my cockpit and my targeting pod will, will a slave, if you will, will, will mirror his and it'll lock onto the target. And I can look out with my MVGs. I can see the strobes, uh, my navigation goggles. I can look out and see the target illuminated. And then all I have to do is my normal strafe attack. Um, which I've always, even as a young lieutenant, I was treated like an instrument maneuver. So for me, doing it at nighttime, pitch black darkness, I'm like, okay, I've done this, you know, 20, 30 times. Like, I can do this, no problem. Of course, my heart is beating out of my chest and my adrenaline is going <laughs> because this is the first time I'm actually going to, like, throw some lead out there and waste somebody. So anyways, I go about my normal attack and I roll in and I roll down final. I'm looking into the black hole. I'm looking into my HUD. Uh, the heads up display and I see the target illuminated. I see all the flashing lights from his strobe and I see everything I need to see. And I pull the trigger and like, you know, squeeze, let go and then recover. Uh, and then I pull up and then from the, 
the JTAC, I hear good hits, good hits, like awesome. Yeah, you got him. Like nice, nice shot. And then like Vapor comes on the radio and he was like, dude, how many rounds did you shoot? And I pull up my rounds counter. I'm like, dude, I shot 150, 160 rounds. He's like, no, you didn't. He's like, I only saw 10 hit the target, maybe 10. He's like, I saw like a cat fart hit the target. <laughs> and so I'm like, ah, dude, like he's just razzing me. You know what I mean? Um, but I was like, but you know, the JTAC said like, good hits, good hits. You got them. Right. So anyways, like we rejoin, go home and, uh, you know, a very cool experience. Uh, and then we get back. And so after you employ in combat, uh, you have to take your tapes in with uh, the Intel squadron and the intelligence guys, and you have to sit down and plug your tapes up and watch everything that happened in your aircraft. And so we plug my tapes up, we fast forward to the time, hit play. And so there's two things that, that happened during the playback that really were just like, oh, sh you know, oh, like, they, oh, didn't see that. So the first thing that happens in the F-16, if you have the targeting pod, targeting pod called up and you select the gun, the targeting pod slaves through the bore side of the gun. So it's going to point directly where the gun's pointing. Um, and the second thing that I realized was that... In, you know, and this is almost true for any airplane. If something is flashing, it's wrong. What I didn't realize was my pipper was flashing. And what my pipper was saying was, I do have radar energy, but it's not at the target you selected. And so what I realized is my, through my targeting pod, which I didn't look at when I was in the airplane because my blood was gone, you know, adrenaline and everything, is that um, my gun was pointed at a mountain. So in all my time orbiting, there was about a 2,000 foot mountain in between me and the target. And when I rolled in on my strafe pass, I was pointing right at the mountain. Did not know at nighttime, had no clue. I turned the gun on when the, when the cue told me to turn the gun on and I let go when the gun or when the jet told me to let go and I pulled up. So what happened was the reason Vapor only saw 10 rounds hit the target is because I pulled the trigger and the first 140 rounds hit the mountain. And as I pulled up, the last 10 rounds walked over the mountain and hit the target. And then I recovered. And so I watched this on my in my tapes and I see the targeting pod footage. I'm smiling about it now. I'm kind of like laughing about it. But like I came, I came within about 700 feet of smashing into the ground at 500 knots. Um, and that's like when you kind of swallow your tongue and you're just like, oh man, like I almost mortared in like for anyone else who's, who's been around for a while and is listening, Trojan, uh, mortared himself on a low angle strafe in Iraq, like four years prior to that, three years prior to that. Uh, and when I saw that tape, I was like, dude, that was almost me. Like I almost did that, but you know, so I didn't. <laughs> yeah. and uh i made it out of it like luckily but i you know it was a lesson learned um if i could go back like what i would have told the jtac is like hey man um i can strafe but i can also just drop a bomb you know what i mean uh and i should have done that uh but you know live and live and learn very lucky and then the other thing i got uh i got poo-pooed on for like you broke a training rule and i was like it's like well we're not in training like <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know I almost died, but, uh, it is combat. So like the training, like, where do you draw the line? Like where do training rules apply? You know, I think in training, that's where they apply. Exactly. So, I mean, like, again, I'm not saying it was a perfect execution on my part. Uh, yeah. but that was like the main feedback I got was like breaking the training rules. But anyways, like it, yeah. you know, and then it's funny enough, I actually talked to the JTAC, like, 
a month later he was coming through Afghanistan or through Kandahar and he came into our squad and he was like, Hey, who was like, who was Viper one eight, like back on, you know, like May, whatever. And I'm like, Oh, that was me. And he was like, Oh dude. He's like, he's like, you wasted that guy. He's like, it was literally one round that hit him. And, uh, so that's like for every, uh, every anyone who was in Afghanistan that summer, like that's what they always say to me is like, it only takes one, it just takes one that's shot. Right. Yeah. And that was, that was the story I heard. One round made it. It just takes one round, you you know, I mean, screwed up as much as I did, but you know, live and learn. Yeah. And I mean, I've told some stories about me, you know, things that were dangerous, but I'm glad you, glad you made it through that. And, and the, uh, it is a Kanga said this a while ago and it's, it's stuck with me and I've said it on the podcast multiple times, but it is a flying fighters is not, inherently dangerous it's just extremely unforgiving and you know that's that's one of those days where it worked out for you and there are a sadly a long list of people who have ran into the ground flying f-16s and fighters in general so i'm glad you're not one you could be here to uh chat with me yeah 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 it's good i mean it's um like i said so it was a learning experience and you know it, it there's a there's a whole laundry list of things you could attribute to why we did what we did, but, uh, and, and what we learned. So yeah, but that's, that's, that's one of the two stories I'm famous for. The other one, I'm not going to tell. That's right. Maybe now on the next episode, mm. but, uh, well, snapper, I got to run, but, uh, thank you for, uh, for joining me on the podcast and everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, like, share, subscribe info, Kodiak shack, dot com and uh info kodiakshack.com and kodiakshack.com you think i'd be better at this stuff by now but i'm not no you're doing great man yeah (laughs) all right well thanks again snapper see you man yeah we'll see ya at parker our purpose is simple We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.